morning, Crossroads. It's good to be back with you. Uh, some familiar faces. Um, I, I've noticed at Crossroads, though, there's just a, a constant influx of new faces, which is a good thing for a young church like Crossroads. Um, so my name's Adam. Uh, like uh, Richard mentioned, I'm uh, starting the work of planning a new church on the west side of Albuquerque. It's called Mosaic Church. Um, good news and bad news. Good news, everything is going well. Um, bad news, uh, we start Sunday services in January, so you won't be seeing me as frequently. Uh, I think Justin's taken uh, great advantage of, of knowing that I have Sundays available. So, uh, But it, it has been a joy uh, to be with you and to the privilege to to open God's Word with you. In fact, if, if you have a Bible uh, this morning, I, let me invite you to open it to the book of Philippians in the New Testament. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. You can pull one up on your phone, or the, the passage this morning is actually printed in the bulletin, and I'm not sure. Maybe it'll show up on the screen. I think, yep, everything's on the screen here. It's wonderful. Um, and so Justin has been preaching through the book of Philippians, and he's invited me just to pick up where he left off. And so this morning we are in Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to look at verses 10 down through 13, just uh, by way of reminder and some setting of the context. Uh, the letter of the Philippians was written to this young church that Paul had originally planted about 10 years earlier. And this transition in chapter 4 actually moves towards the main theme and the, the actually the, the initial reason that Paul wrote the letter, and that was to give thanks and to rejoice in the work that God had done through the church at Philippi. They had given an, an extended a, a gracious gift, probably a financial gift to Paul in his season of need. And so here in chapter 4, it transitions back to this theme of rejoicing and thanksgiving uh, as the context of the letter. And so that's where we'll pick up this morning. Uh, let's turn our attention to God's word in verse uh, 10 and then uh, stopping in verse 13. This is, this is the word of the Lord. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. That now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but this, the word of our God, will stand forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our God in heaven, it is with great joy and anticipation that we open your word this morning. Lord, left to ourselves, we will never understand this. And so, Lord, I pray now that you, by your spirit, would show up and that you would move in hearts. Uh, I pray that you would use me to communicate uh, clearly this passage and what you're showing your people. And I pray that you would draw us closer to yourself, Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we're in November, in case you didn't notice. We're in November. There's a couple ways that you can tell November has arrived. One is we start talking about being grateful for things, right? End of the month, it's Thanksgiving. So out come all the gratitude things. Love it. Not, not hating on that. Uh, but another way that you can tell November has arrived is if you're married, your husband perhaps is participating in what has been identified as no-shave November, or also known as Movember, as in mustache November I don't know. As you notice, I don't participate in this because my attempts at this ritual are pathetic and downright 
they're just, they're just pathetic. So I don't even participate. But No Shave November is a very real thing. Um, ask your husband about it. He, if he's not participating in it, he definitely wants to. Um, <laughs> and so No Shave November, the essence behind it is that you don't shave in November. And most men just think that that's the whole reason behind it. And so men, I'm actually going to give you a great justification and a deeper reason for participating in No Shave November because the actual heart of No Shave November has deeper meaning to it. No Shave November, I'm not sure when it was founded. It couldn't have been much more than five years ago because, you know, we just kind of trend on new things. But No Shave November originally started in order to bring awareness to men's health, particularly towards cancer. And so it was this month where men could show their hairiness and provide this, this external show of something. And in lieu of all of whatever products they might use to normally shave, shaving cream, uh, razors, those kinds of things, they are supposed to donate that money towards men's health and, and cancer awareness. And so, yes, I just prodded you towards generous giving in, in, in another arena, but, but beyond that, no Shave November has a deeper meaning and significance to it than the, than the appearance provides. Husbands, you're welcome. But the point I'm trying to make to open this up is, is this passage, particularly verse 13, is a very familiar passage to Christians. Verse 13 is one of those uh, just heart-filled, profound passages of the Bible that perhaps is your life verse. You know, perhaps it... Perhaps you have a, a tattoo brazened on your body with this verse. Perhaps this is something that's placarded on your walls, or uh, it's just one of your common sayings in life, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And if it is, I'm grateful for that, because this is a profound passage. But as we look at this passage this morning, I want to, just as No Shave November wants to, bring out some deeper meaning and significance that may appear to be on the surface of this passage. You see, there are a number of things that we Christians tend to do with a passage like this. One of them is to pluck it out of its entire context and take verse 13, and we want to make it say way more than God ever intended it to say. And so we say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, including being a millionaire. And so we, we do everything in our own striving and efforts to do this. But another error that we make is that we want to explain this text away with the context. And so we, we kind of deaden and we kind of soften the profundity, the, 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 the deep essence of this passage. And we say, you know, well, the context is actually this. And so it's really not that profound. It's actually for Paul. It didn't really mean anything for us. And so, you know, we kind of explain it away. And I think there's those two kind of pendulum swings that we do with a passage like this. Well, today I think that that God, if this is your favorite verse, if it, if it isn't yet, it, I hope that it perhaps will be after we discuss it today. But, but God has this beautiful promise that's made to Christians in it. And the promise is this. The promise is that God in his power and in his strength through our union with Christ can get us through anything. That regardless of the circumstances that you find yourself in today, that Jesus is enough. And so here's how I want to divide the passage as we look, look at it. Um, I've laid it out in, in three points. Um, I notice actually as I laid this out that every time I've come here, I think I've made three points out of a sermon. That's not always the case, but, um, but praise be to God, it's another three-point sermon. So um, here's how we're going to look at the passage today. First, we're going to consider the significance of concern. Second, we're going to look at the secret of contentment. 
And then thirdly, we're going to look at the strength of Christ. So a little alliteration there. Maybe it'll help you remember it. Maybe it won't. But let's first consider the significance of concern, primarily looking at verse 10. Now, I've been at Crossroads a few times, and this comes out in my sermons fairly frequently, so I'm not sure if I've shared it or not, but I had quite the extended period of college. Uh, I took the long route to college. I wasn't in and out in three and a half years. Um, I, I like to savor the, the college experience. And part of my college experience was my dreaded hate for history. Uh, the history class particularly one that's etched into my memory was when I was in my first year of college up at New Mexico Highlands, up in Las Vegas, northern New Mexico. Some of you know where that is, others don't. Um, but this one particular class, it just, to this day, like I, I get chills. I'm, I'm, it's already coming on me. I'm getting chills thinking about this class and just how it graded on my soul. I was just not good at history. Like, I remember particularly, like, the, it was fall, I was going into this classroom for this test, and I just didn't know what I was doing. And, and my grade proved to, that to be true, but, um, but I really hated history. I, I've never been good at it, even, even as I've worked through my college experience, just history just has not been my strength. It's not, it's not my deal. I don't have a lot of strengths, but history is not one of them. Um, but I was thinking about this passage and, and kind of how behind all of it, there is this deep significance of history for God's people. History has always been prominent for the survival of God's people. I mean, my mind's drawn to the exodus, the exodus motif. In, in the early stages of the Israelite nation, they had fled from Egypt. They had been delivered from their bondage in Egypt. And, and they, uh, you know, they have this Passover celebration. And uh, they go to the Red Sea and they're delivered. And in every instance, the Passover and the Red Sea, it's brought up all the time throughout Israel, Israel's history. Because that was, that was the great day of God's deliverance of his people. And so their understanding of their past really proved to be the fruit of their survival for the future. And so history always plays a, a, a deep and abiding role um, for God's people. And same, the same is true here in, in verse 10. Uh, remember, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing this, this letter. This is a letter written to a, a young church, and it's written to a church that he had a deep history with. He had... He had a significant past with the, the church in Philippi. Let, let me just kind of, this is by way of remembrance. I'm sure this has come out throughout it, but let me kind of draw out some things for us that we know about Paul and his relationship with this church that bring the significance of verse 10 to us. Well, as I mentioned earlier, that this church is about 10 years old. So at this point of Paul's writing, he's in prison writing this letter to a church that he started about 10 years ago. And so there's been this, this relationship that's already been established by Paul. It was established during one of Paul's missionary journeys. He had three missionary journeys. The church at Philippi was established in his second missionary journey. And it was established in a very unique way. Uh, this is recorded in the book of Acts. It's a, another New Testament book. And it's recorded that, that while Paul was in this region, he was in the, the Macedonian district, right? And he went there because it was a, it, he went to the large, vibrant cities. And this city in particular was primarily pagan. It didn't have a, a Jewish background to it. And so Paul was there for weeks on end, and he was going on every, um, on every Sabbath, going into the synagogues and teaching about Jesus being the Messiah. And particularly uh, when he was trying to gather this church, there were no Christians there at the time. 
And so the book of Acts actually talks about Paul going, having to go outside of the city gates in order to find Christians, in order to encourage each other in their faith, spread the gospel. And in one of those instances, the book of Acts records this for us, Paul goes outside of the city gates and he finds a, a, a group of Jewish women that are gathering. So there's this small group of women that are gathering to learn more about Jesus and what he had come to do, do, and Paul's teaching them. And in that initial gathering, the establishment of this church, there was a young woman named Lydia. And if you have any familiar, familiarity with the book of Acts, you know Lydia is, is one of the key converts to Christianity. Uh, she was uh, Lydia of Thyatira, the, the seller of purple goods, and, and the text specifically talks about how the Lord opened her heart to, in order to believe, and she was a, a key player in the, in the advancement of the local church. And so that's actually where the church at Philippi started, outside of the city gates with a group of women, particularly with Lydia. And so that's 10 years previous, and so that's where their history with Paul began. But more than that, we, what we know about this region, Philippi and, and the Macedonian district, is that it was extremely poor. It was an impoverished region, and they were known um, for, for having little, little to offer. But remember why Paul's writing this letter. He's going to talk more about it in the following verses, which Justin will deal with next week. But it's because they gave a financial gift to Paul. And so in the midst of their poverty, they showed generosity. And it began to deepen the cords of the relationship that they had with Paul. One more thing that strengthened this relationship and showed the concern that Paul had for the Philippians is that the Philippian church was a, an object of attack and persecution. Now, we all know that the early church, many, much persecution was suffered. Uh, but f- the Philippians were particularly known for being the object of scorn and rejection and hatred by the world. And so while all of us are fairly familiar with Paul's persecution that he suffered, recorded in the Bible, in, in many books of the Bible for us, not so much so with the Philippians. And so that's kind of the background to verse 10, is that Paul is saying, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. In other words, there was a, a lack of concern on some level. There was a, a distance that had occurred between Paul and the Philippians, and now it's being revived. The language there is actually that of blooming or blossoming. And so here there's this revival of concern between Paul and the Philippians, and he rejoices in it. He says, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Can you feel the significance of the concern that's taking place between Paul and these Philippian Christians. Though they've been um, distanced through um, geography, though they've been distanced through their circumstances, Paul's now in Rome, he's in a Roman prison, and though they've been distanced over time, there's something that connects them, and it's the concern that they have for the well-being of each other. It's the significance of concern, and this concern creates a deep and lasting connection with each other. And I think there's something to be said for that between, between us today as Christians. I, I think the, the bridging to our context is not that much of a stretch, that when we have sincere concern for each other in the church, it enables us to consider others h- higher than we view ourselves, and it brings... and it it breeds a deep seed of humility in us. 
And that's what's taking place between Paul and the Philippians. And that's what's supposed to be taking place here. And so when you are a part of a church and you withhold concern for others in a real and lasting way, you are stunting your own growth. You are providing a barrier that is not allowing the other person to grow and is not allowing you to grow in the way that Christ intends. And so the significance of concern is that that, that we would have this deep and lasting connection with each other, particularly as people come and go through our lives, that though geography and though time and though circumstances may separate us, that something is lasting. And that's what the concern that's taking place here in verse 10 does for us. But secondly, look at verses 11 through 12, where Paul talks about the secret of contentment. Um, when I was reading through this passage, uh, several commentators talked about uh, this idea how this is kind of, Paul, this might be Paul talking like a double-minded or out of both sides of his mouth, kind of saying, hey, thanks for your generosity, uh, Philippians, but, but no thanks, I didn't really need it. It's almost this, like he's, he's undermining what he's saying in verse 10, and, and I don't think that's the case, because if that were the case, Paul's rejoicing in verse 10 and his, his gratefulness for their gratitude in verse 10 would be fake. It would be Paul kind of putting on a front, putting on a, a, a just this pretend act to, uh, to the Philippians. So I don't think that's the case, but if you look at the verse, he, he, he does kind of switch the tone a little bit. In verse 11, at the very beginning, he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. In other words, not that I really needed you. Because then he goes on to say, because I've learned how to live life in plenty and in want and in, in abundance and in need. And so he, he begins to describe this idea of Christian contentment. Um, I don't know what your experience as a Christian is. Uh, mine's rather short. I've been a Christian since college. So about 14 years now. Um, yeah, do the math. I'm in my 30s. Yeah, that's about right. Um, it, about 14 years. And many of you have probably been Christians longer than, uh, you know, longer than I've been alive. And so there's, there's this great uh, divide between all of our Christian experiences. We're all in different places in the journey, right? And as, as we look at this passage, you start thinking about Paul. All right, he's writing this letter. He's having this very real personal situation. And you've got to ask yourself, what, what did he expect when becoming a Christian? I mean, I don't know if you ever ask yourself that. If you look at your life circumstances, you say, is this what I thought life would be like as a Christian? Or, or, or even just what life would be like in general? And I mean, consider Paul. Paul grew up in a Jewish home. Right in, in that passage, actually, when I was here last time in Philippians chapter 3, he talked about how he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was of the Benjamite tribe. Uh, he was a, a Pharisee as to the law. So he was deeply ingrained in this religious life. That was his context. He, always, he was the kid that was always at church, right? Some of us. And so here's Paul. He's been, he's, he's been raised and groomed in this religion. And then he, he meets Jesus, right, in Acts chapter 9. Jesus knocks him off his horse, literally, and he reveals himself to him, and, and Paul becomes a, a Christian. Now, now realize, Paul didn't invent Christianity. This was something new. Paul had realized that his Jewish roots had come to fruition in Jesus. And so Paul was a, he was a Messianic Jew. He was a Jew who believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And so at that point in his life, granted it started a little rough, he, on the road to Damascus, he had been knocked off his horse. He was blinded. He had to go into the city. Um, it, it had a rough start, but, but I wonder if he had thought that this is the way things would pan out. 
You know, this is speculation, but, but I wonder if he ever asked the question, like, is this what I thought I was getting myself into when I became a Christian? Let's reflect on what we know about Paul's experience a little bit. Well, we know that his first 13 years, 13 years after becoming a Christian, he spent in the wilderness preparing for his ministry. Now, that's some patience, right? He was in the Arabian ministry learning the gospel. He was understanding how everything that was talked about of Jesus in the Old Testament had come true in his experience at that time. And so he spent 13 years just preparing for his ministry. I mean, seminary at four years was grueling enough. I can't imagine 13 years in the wilderness. And so here's Paul. After 13 years, he goes and he convinces people that the Lord had given him apostolic authority to to begin his ministry. And then what is he greeted with? Well, we have several accounts of it, but let me just summarize them for you. Three times he's beaten with rods. Five times he's given 39 lashes. That was a, a lashing, a flogging of sorts. Three times he was shipwrecked. One time he was stoned, dragged out of Lystra to the point where they pretty much thought he was dead. And at the current time of the writing of this letter, he's in a Roman prison. Now, their prison system isn't like ours. It was like a house arrest, but he was chained to a Roman soldier for two straight years. That's, that, that was his life. And granted, yes, there were many fruitful opportunities that Paul had. Clearly, he was uh, uh, very impactful for the advancement of the kingdom and the gospel. All of those things were true. But I wonder, as Paul sits in in, in his imprisonment at this time of this letter, if he ever asked himself, like, is this what I thought it would be like? Is this what I thought I was getting myself into? And I think the very same question we should be asking ourselves Because there is this great gap in our lives, and it sounds something like this. The gap is between the desires of our hearts, what we think we're supposed to be living for, and the reality of our circumstances, right? Where we're at now and what life is really like. And so the wider that gap is, the greater the discontentment can be in our lives, And so if you're anything like me, the wider that gap gets between the desires of what I want my life to look like and the reality of what it is, discontentment grows there. And when this gap gets really wide, when things are not going the way I thought they would be, what do I do? I work to change the circumstances. I do everything in my power to get closer to the desires of my heart. And while while it may not be wrong or inherently sinful to do that, there is this inclination of self-sufficiency that I'm trusting in that God is not good in my circumstances when I do that. And so the greater the suffering, the bigger the gap, we try to change our circumstances. And the question is, how much is enough? Like we live in a very comfortable world. And you may be here today where you have never lived a day where you've, you know, wondered where your next meal was coming from. You know, we live in a world where we struggle between defining what is needed and what is nice. And so all of our inclinations is to go towards the desires of our hearts, the desires of our hearts. But if you notice in the New Testament and in Paul's, every one of Paul's prayers, I I think I could say this semi-authoritatively, I'm sure I borrowed it from somebody I read, but in every one of Paul's prayers that are at least recorded here, he never, cha- he never prayed for the circumstances to change, ever. He prayed that people would be given endurance, 
that they'd be given enlightenment, that they'd be given ability to endure what God had put before them. But he never asked for the circumstances to be changed. And, and again, I'm not saying that it's wrong for us to try to change circumstances. Indeed, quite often it's right. But there's something to be said about growing out of that discontentment and seeing that gap and how we try to fill it with everything except what God intends us for. Um, if you're anything like me, your tendency is to define and to describe your relationship with God based on what's going on in your life. Right? We survey our circumstances and we survey our struggles and we survey everything that's going on around us and we say, well, God, God's not working there, so he must not love me. Or God didn't change this for my good, so I don't understand how that could be, how I could be walking with him. And so our inclination is to lean on our own sufficiency and to trust in our own interpretation of our circumstances as opposed to what this passage is telling us. Because here's the secret of contentment. Look at the language that Paul uses. He says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, uh, abundance, and need. The secret of contentment is believing in the gospel. The mystery of the gospel is that God, in his wisdom and knowledge, has seen our condition. He's seen our circumstances and the helpless estate that we were in. And he didn't leave us there to figure it out on our own. God, in his mercy, sent his own son to become a man. He embraced our condition. He knew your struggles. He knew your inclination to to long for the desires of your hearts and to avoid the circumstances of your life. Jesus understood that struggle. But yet what we know about Jesus is that he never gave in to the desires of his heart. In fact, the primary example of this is found in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the night before Jesus' death when he's, been, uh, he's pr- being prepared to be uh, turned over by his friends. He's being forsaken. And in that garden, Jesus actually asked for his circumstances to change. In that garden, he prays to his father and he says, Father, I know that this is your will, but if there's any other way to accomplish what I came to do, please let that be done. If there's any way that this cup can pass from me, God, let it pass. And God's answer was no. And so Jesus there in the garden, broken and sweating tears of angst, he comes and he embraces the will of God in the midst of suffering, suffering that you and I will never know. He endured the wrath of God. That's what the cup stood for, was that Jesus would come and he would drink the Father's wrath that you and I deserved in our place. And so Jesus, he shows us that the mystery of the gospel is that he came and he did what you and I could never do. And so us believing that promise that Christ has satisfied all of it is the secret of contentment. It is the way that God works. And which is why verse 13 now, with all of that backdrop, is so profound. Look at verse 13 in the strength of Christ. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. If you have young children, or if you were born before or after 1920, I think, uh, you're familiar perhaps with the little engine that could. 
little engine that could. It's a, it, you know, the, the, the moral of that story has been retold and reshaped in many different forms. But the essence of the story is this. There, were train, there was a train that needed to get up a hill. And many other able trains came to this helpless and needless train. And they had, they had excuse after excuse. Oh, I couldn't do it or I don't have time to do it. I, I forget the details of the story. But, but the, the point was nobody came to help this helpless train. But the little engine that could was willing and he came to that train that needed help, and he says, I think 